difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Genevieve Kosky, Tosh Robinson. And... Keith Phipps. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current release. This week, we invite you to stay with us. We have 12 cabins and 12 vacancies, or... If you prefer, a cozy little bunker underground, free of deadly toxins, with a complimentary copy of Cannibal Airlines on VHS. Genevieve, what's the catch? The catch is that the creep who owns the place is probably going to kill you. Our movie pairing this week is Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and Dan Trachtenberg's 10 Cloverfield Lane, which share the same setup. Both open with a young woman skipping town in a hurry. She drives through the night on an empty stretch of highway, but veers off the road unexpectedly. She finds lodging in an isolated place, overseen by a gentle-toned but temperamental host who may not have her best interests in mind. Psycho and 10 Cloverfield Lane diverge from there. In Hitchcock's classic, the woman in peril is Marion Crane, played by Janet Leigh, who famously doesn't make it past the first half of the movie. The host is Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins, and it's his twisted mind that ultimately becomes the focus of the last half. In 10 Cloverfield Lane, Mary Elizabeth Winstead gets to spend more time on screen as Michelle, who wakes up from an accident to find herself in an underground bunker. Her host is Howard, played by John Goodman, as a control freak who claims to be protecting Michelle and his neighbor Emmett, played by John Gallagher Jr., from a deadly chemical attack above ground. Quite the predicament, Scott. Indeed. Here we have two thrillers set primarily in one location, isolated from the rest of humanity. We have two women whose lives have permanently detoured, and we have two older men whose monstrousness will spend the bulk of the movie attempting to fathom. Tasha, Keith, Genevieve, our listeners might think us mad to compare Psycho and 10 Cloverfield Lane, but we all go a little mad sometimes. After all, Cassidy, I told you, all that cash... I'm not taking the responsibility. Oh, for heaven's sake. Girl works for you for 10 years, you trust her. All right, yes, you better come over. Well, I ain't about to kiss off $40,000. I'll get it back, and if any of it's missing, I'll replace it with her fine, soft flesh. I'll track her, never you doubt it. Oh, hold on, Cass. I still can't believe it must be some kind of a mystery. I, I can't. You check with the bank, no? They never laid eyes on her, no? You still trusting? Hot creeper, she sat there while I dumped it out. Hardly even looked at it. Planning and, and even flirting with me. Let us pretend we're moviegoers in the year 1960. Last year, we had a great time watching Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest, which was a big, glamorous, exciting spy thriller. I don't know about you guys, but I still haven't gotten over that crop duster sequence. And the year before that was Vertigo. And before that, The Wrong Man, The Man Who Knew Too Much, To Catch a Thief in Rear Window. Plus, there's a TV show, which is a hoot. The guy's on a roll. And now he's got this new movie called Psycho, which he's made in black and white for under a million dollars, using the crew from Albert Hitchcock Presents. Ticket price is 75 cents. So we're in the theater, the lights go down, and here's what we witness. The camera gliding through an open hotel window in Phoenix where we see two unmarried people, Marion Crane and Sam Loomis, in sexual congress. I'm already sweating profusely at this point. This is not something I'm used to seeing. Back at Marion's office, an officious gas bag comes breezing in with $40,000 in cash, which Marion is told to deposit in the bank. But that money could solve a lot of problems for her and Sam, and she takes off. She's a terrible criminal. She cannot hide the guilt that's gnawing away at her on the long drive. And when the pounding rain becomes too much for her, she pulls over for the night at the Bates Motel. She meets the proprietor, Norman Bates, who gives us the creeps, but he's a good listener. She leaves his office, determined to bring the money back. We dread where this might be headed. This movie is called Psycho, after all. But we sense that for Marion, some form of well-earned redemption is forthcoming. Then, Norman Bates watches Marion undress from a peephole in his office. We kind of did that too at the beginning of the movie, but still. She steps into a cleansing shower. The bathroom door is open, and suddenly we can see a figure approaching through the translucent curtain. The curtain parts, the violins shriek, and a knife stabs at Marion again and again and again from multiple angles, and it doesn't end until she stops screaming, the score decelerates, and she slumps dead into the tub. Our protagonist is gone. 
What must it have felt like to go into Psycho cold in 1960 and watch that happen? And what is it that shocks us the most? This gruesome act of violence with its unsettling erotic underpinnings or the fact that we've just bid farewell to the lead character? And what kind of evil have we been thrown into at this point? Norman Bates is the lead character now. The movie is about him and his hangups and his relationship to his mother. Other characters lead the search for Marion, namely her sister Lila, played by Vera Miles, Sam, and a detective named Arbogast, played by Martin Balsam. But Norman's secrets are the driving force behind most of Psycho. There's so much to talk about here. Uh, Vertigo topped the sight and sound list of the greatest films ever made, but Psycho is probably Hitchcock's best-known work. It remains disturbing. It taps into primal fears and desires. And the twist at the end of the first half planted the seeds for our current spoiler-phobic culture. Hitchcock did not allow critics to see the film before the public. He also imposed a no-late-admissions policy. The secret was well-guarded and primed for maximum impact. So, my fellow Next Picture podcasters, can you imagine what kind of impact this movie made on audiences in 1960, and how does it play in 2016? Genevieve Kosky. <laughs> well, to the first half of your question, I'll say no. No, I cannot imagine that. I have known about Psycho, it seems, my entire life, and that is not context I can remove from my brain, although you did a very good job at the beginning there, Scott, of of helping me imagine that, so thank you. How does it play in 2016? Tasha? (laughs) Well, I mean, I obviously hate this movie because of its violence towards women and its complete discarding of the the female character. No, I mean, parts of it play very slowly for 2016. I mean, I remember the first time I saw Psycho and just how it it kind of lulls you by setting you up for a specific kind of film, a film that was very familiar in 1960 and was very familiar to people who watched movies from the 50s and 60s even later in time. So this was one of those films like I I went into it relatively young and unspoiled and and fresh and I remember just that impact of that moment when you start you when you see the shadow behind the curtain mm-hmm. that moment when you see Janet Leigh's face as she realizes what's going on and to go from that high to what becomes a very quiet procedural and a very talky procedural and kind of has its ups and downs in terms of feeling like you're actually moving forward back to that particular height of tension and and extreme emotion. Uh, there are points where it, it just plays really, really slowly, even now. Um, and I, I wonder if it did back then, too. Hitchcock has such a habit of the thing where you put something in the frame that the audience can see that the the characters can't. And sometimes this whole movie feels like that to me. You know what happened to Marion Crane. You know, eventually other people are going to come into close contact with what happened to Marion Crane. And it's like that's hanging out in the background of the whole movie as everything else happens. So it, it just it plays in a really off again, on again kind of fashion for me, kind of in terms of, of pacing and storytelling. But there's still just there's impacts in this film that are like nothing else. But I think that really is effective. I mean, just that knowledge that feeds attention in the second half. You can have the scene, the scene where Arbogast shows up and he's, he's been to many different hotels or motels uh, searching for Marion and he's asking questions and you just feel it's almost like there's this rattlesnake and he doesn't realize that, that <laughs> the rattlesnake is there. And, uh, and you know, he's stepping closer and closer to it uh, with his questions. He's getting there. And once he arrives there, he's in, he's in big, big trouble. I, I, I think it still plays brilliantly. Um, but I, I think also, if I can step back... I- I admire what it must have been like to go and, you know, how it must have played if you were cold, which from a certain point of view, this is as nihilistic as filmmaking gets. I mean, you can throw out Fight Club, you can throw out, you know, whatever your go-to nihilistic film is because- Batman versus Superman. Well, that's a whole other podcast, which (laughs) I don't think we're going to do that episode, actually. But I mean, it it plays very well as this redemption story. I mean, it it is, you know, this this young woman, she makes a mistake. uh, She's having sexual congress, to use uh, Scott's word, (laughs) uh, outside the, the- these holy bounds of matrimony. Uh, she steals. She she leaves. All the tension in this in the first half of this film is built around: Will she get caught? What is she going to do? You know, it is sort of hypnotically paced. All the driving sequences. Uh, she goes to a hotel. She meets this nice young man. He's got problems of his own, but she can kind of relate to them, though. You know, I mean, we all we all go a little mad sometimes. <laughs> uh, and like the two of them, like they forge a connection. And they see a bit of each of themselves in each other, and she goes back, and she resolves to live a moral life and go back, and you know, turn herself in, and she's happy. You know, she gets she gets a shower sequence, and then she just turns into a a bunch of blood washing down a drain, because (laughs) in a sense, 
all the sort of the meaning that we bring into a movie where it's about characters learning and striving and, and becoming uh, better people. Uh, it may just be lies that we're telling ourselves. That's partially how the psycho plays. And it, it is as disturbing as anything you'll ever see in a movie, frankly. I have to say, I, I never really liked the idea that she decided to, to take the money back. That just, it doesn't seem to come necessarily out of much that Norman says. Mm. And it, for me, it's just... I don't know. It's a, a weird bit of like almost sentimentality. Well, in some ways she tries to take a big back because she's a movie heroine in 1960. And that's yeah. What do. Well, and I think that's established before she even leaves town. Mm-hmm. She's second guessing herself from the minute she leaves and when she sees her boss and then that moment when she's driving away from the used car dealership. And it's just kind of it's hit over and over again that she is not cut out for this and she is doubting herself every step of the way. And the fact that she succumbs to that doubt is the natural trajectory for her character, regardless of how Norman plays into that trajectory. It's it's established even before that, too, because in the hotel room that she is a person who is not immoral. I mean, she she doesn't want she's cutting off the whole hotel room thing. That's that's an important point that's made in that mm. first scene. Um, she wants to be respectable. She wants to be respectable, and so so and that's just something that she's she's struggling with, and she that she's serious about. Uh, and I think that her seriousness in it does give you know the impact of that loss. You know, it makes it so much greater uh, to, to you know that it, that it really is for naught, and that <laughs> the forty thousand is just you know in the bottom of the swamp, right? <laughs> right, and part of part of I think I have not read the novel, but part of the uh, genius of this adaptation, for what I've read about it, is that that Marion is basically two chapters in a, in a longer book and she's they just blow that up so it's half the movie and I think that really kind of throws you off balance in really interesting ways in this movie. I mean from that opening scene which by the way if you want to talk about how it played in 1960 mm-hmm. like that's some scandal. You're seeing yeah. you're seeing a lot of skin. And this is still like the tail end of the Hayes Code era too. Yeah, right? for sure. I, so you're seeing all the skin and then then they, they start they get back into bed together and they start making out and it's I mean it's downright racy. And then they point out in the middle of it that they're not married. I shocking, shocking! I tell you, Won't somebody please <laughs> think of the children that sexual congress could have, congress, could have wandered little, into this uh... moment of sexual congress. Uh-huh. Have you heard the story about the boob in that scene? <laughs> no, tell me the story about I, the boob. This, I, I, I did not do enough research to, to, to verify. Like, I'm suddenly picturing a sound guy going homana homana. <laughs> No, apparently uh, Hitchcock screened it for the censors. One of them imagined that they could see some human breast in that scene. And, you know, that was a problem at the time, obviously. So Hitchcock said he would take it back, recut it, do whatever he needed to do. He did that, but he did not actually make any change. Screened it for them again, and no one saw it. So I think the, I actually think the opposite. I think what he was. I think if I read this story, mm-hmm. the opposite happened. The people who thought they saw something did <laughs> did not see something. <laughs> the people who did, did, but in any case, yeah. I mean, I think he was certainly working around the censors. And the other thing about the film too is that you know one of Hitchcock's his impetus for making it was kind of like let's make this low budget sort of down and dirty thing that a studio like the studio like Universal or something would not really touch but let's do it well <laughs> it's and it's almost like and I guess you could say that that mentality is sort of explains what you know somebody like Quentin Tarantino did decades later it's like let's take this completely disreputable thing and do it so well that people are going to have to start paying attention to it and talking about it because the the craft is is too uh, great to deny. Yeah, I kind of started a thought and and didn't finish it because I distracted myself with sexual congress as I so often do. Boob. But he <laughs> humming a humming a boob. Um, it just it seems like that that opening in particular sets you up with what seems like it's going to be a story. What seems like it's going to be the goal of the story is like can these two star-crossed young lovers get together? And the whole issue with the money becomes kind of a sideline where she dives into something someplace that she doesn't necessarily belong and it doesn't even matter whether you're rooting for her to hang on to the money and and keep it and start a new life or come back and come clean and fix the mistakes she's made either way your rooting interest is meant to be with with her and Sam with these young lovers who clearly care about each other but whose circumstances left in a, an uncomfortable place and the fact that that turns out to not be the story of the movie at all like in and of itself is is almost as shocking as Marion Crane's cold dead face pressed up against the linoleum I mean it's just it's just it doesn't feel like something that you saw in movies at the time. 
Well, and speaking to your point about kind of the tawdriness of it, Scott, or the the B-movie element of it, I mean, the shower scene is obviously the most famous scene, but I think it's also the best example of what you're talking about, where it is the most potentially titillating uh, Mm -hmm. scene outside of maybe that, that opening scene. But, you know, I mean she's naked and she's stabbed and like these are all very pulpy things but it's filmed with such incredible purpose and craft and you know you read everything that went into that it was like days of shooting and setups to to get that right you know that's really remarkable and that may be where this idea of elevating base material came from and he really uh hitchcock really invites the viewer to participate in a very uncomfortable way. I mean, mm-hmm. right from the very beginning of that opening shot, that's a very hard shot to to pull off. So it means something. Actually, every shot in the movie means something, which is is one of the things I really love about it. Yeah, but you are you, the audience, that you're the one going through that window. You're the one looking through it, and you are with uh, Norman Bates when he is looking through that peephole as well. And and so you are you're you're the voyeur. You're an active participant, and uh, and you're uh, with her in the shower when the curtain gets pulled back. Too. Yeah, yeah, you know, no, you're your victim too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you you really sort of get it get in it, and uh, um, that's a very disturbing place to be now, and certainly then. I you know I, I like to imagine, I do like to imagine what it's like to be, <laughs> what it's like to be a moviegoer at any point in time, and I think you know just seeing just being a cinephile and seeing a lot of. Uh, movies from a, from a certain period, I give, guess, gives you um, some ability to kind of guess what people were feeling. This is, I, this is a second hand witness to this. Like where where uh, last week, I'm, I'm last episode, I mentioned my mom, my mom being shot by Mash. This is her other nightmare movie that she went to, uh, unsuspecting of what the content would be, and <laughs> and uh, uh, was uh, was was terrified for for quite some time after seeing it. So my mom's not listening, but we're doing all your least favorite movies. Right? <laughs> oh, so she, so she, she, was, she refused to take showers for years. Uh, she's something about being afraid to be in the shower for a long time. Do we believe the story that Janet Lee didn't take showers for for years after this? Uh, I don't actually. Yeah, I don't, I don't either. <laughs> Not really, no. I, I feel like the all, all the work that must have gone into that scene had to have. Baths uh, are such a production too. There's <laughs> <laughs> apparently a famous trivia point where the people of the Universal lot would say for years would uh, on tours would claim that Hitchcock uh, shut the hot water mm-hmm. off to get a, a convincing scream out of Janet Leigh, and <laughs> apparently. Some historians looked into it, and no, that was a complete fabrication. That was just like a tour story. I think there are a lot of legends that come yeah. out of something like this. And it, it's sort of a way to defang the movie for yourself. It's sort of a way to like turn what happens in that shower into a joke. But I mean, for me, you talk about the the pulpiness of the content. I think one of the most interesting things about the shower scene is that that switch in point of view from Norman's perspective as a, as a voyeur. And everything that implies about, you know, the the secret watching of women's naked bodies to her perspective and then back again. The moment where after uh, Norman leaves, when she's just sort of sliding slowly down the, the tub wall and she's dying and she doesn't realize she's dying, but you can see it in her eyes. I That may be one of the most powerful deaths I've ever seen in cinema. There's just there's something that that provokes empathy there about the the weary and the way she's visibly leaving life that is you don't get that in movie deaths anymore you know like movie or tv people have a tendency to die instantaneously you know you get your throat cut and you fall to the ground like a cut puppet or you get shot in the stomach both of those things are lingering painful ways to die and hitchcock doesn't linger over her death in a lurid way but he lingers over it in a way that's meaningful and for as much as that scene and really this entire movie has been parodied and referenced over the years, I, I can't think of a reference to it that does acknowledge how lingering and difficult and uncomfortable that is. It, the you know spoofs and references of that scene always just kind of stop after the stabbing and cut to the drain. I think that it speaks to the impact of this film that that scene for as many times as it has been parodied and referenced, it still has that power. Or remade. I mean, I've never watched the entirety of the Gus Van Sant reshoot, but I did go watch the shower scene, but I was because I was very curious how exactly how he'd handle it, whether he'd try to shot for shot it, or it would be a much more graphic version. And it's pretty close to shot for shot, except he can't resist showing you the big open wounds. And it just completely changes the nature of the thing. I can't with that. 
<laughs> and, and, and there's also, I think it's, there's an extra 180 degrees to the camera turn from the eye or something. There's some other like sort of one up and ship there. Also, uh, we, a bit we, of a, also a bit of a prelude there, a little, uh, you know, with uh, Norman Bates cannot uh, keep his hands off himself. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, really? Sequence. I've never seen. Oh, I've yeah. never yeah. seen. We, we could probably yeah. sidetrack the whole podcast. No, but, but, but it, actually, it, but it actually brings me to a point to a question though, because that, that makes it pretty explicit. The you know what what Norman might have been thinking in that in that moment in the Gus Van Sant. But like stepping inside Norman's head, like what, what is what is he thinking? What what, what is the psychology? Well, there? I mean, oh, well, we have a long scene yeah. at the end telling us exactly what he's thinking. Right, right. <laughs> you see, Mister Tobias. <laughs> I guess I, I, I kind of just I kind of my attention drifts off every time I watch that scene because man that takes scene. a lot that takes yeah, a lot. yeah it almost becomes a parody of itself I I almost wonder how self aware uh, it was I I I'm I'm kind of a sucker for like sort of forties and on like. Um, uh, Freud got it right mm-hmm. way of thinking. Or, <laughs> yeah, or... <laughs> yeah, and that's what the kind of the talking about what a audience in 1960 would how they would view this movie. Like that was kind of the height of psychoanalysis in the popular culture and, and Freudian thought. So I think it, within that context, that ending that plays just so awkward and lumpy now would you know be kind of like a whoa like a mind exploding you know uh, effect and part of it is just it's conveying information that people at the time did not have i mean hitchcock had to fight to have the word transvestite in the ending of the movie even though it's in a clarification that no he's not a conventional transvestite that's not what transvesticism is just having the word in it, it was considered a dirty word. It was considered something kinky that you didn't mention, even in this clinical setting. And he had to bring a psychiatrist in and argue for it. You know, people seeing the movie in 1960 didn't have like kind of the decades of pop psychology we've had. And all of this was, in theory, a necessary explanation of what the hell they had just seen and why, in a way, I mean, it's almost a progressive film for its day because it's not like, woohoo, people who put on women's clothing are crazy and that's all there is to it you know it's trying to actually lay it all out that said for me the ending i've always considered the ending kind of fun because the movie starts with that uh like the title friday december 11th 243 and then it ends with uh, you know your guy with your slicked back hair uh laying out the case files for the cops it's an episode of dragnet you know, it, it fits into a specific kind of feel of the time. It's like, here's the case here. We're closing the case files on Norma and Norman Bates here. And I like it feels fine to me. It, it's never really bothered me. Well, that's also not the last last scene. There, yeah, there, the, there really is a scene after that. And, and yeah. I mean, the last image is totally chilling. Oh, no, really for is. sure. Yeah. I think that functions as a pretty good uh, stinger to the dry clinical case file scene that comes before it yeah it's kind of like a case, an attempt to like put the demon back in a box and, mm-hmm. and, and that that's that scene's kind of disabusing that uh you're the notion that you could even do that i actually kind of want to talk I mean, you're talking about so the tv-ness of it and this was shot with his albert hitchcock presents crew on a on a pretty small budget and if you're coming out of north by northwest which was his last film and probably i would think his biggest production right i mean yeah. he, he did nothing bigger than north by northwest big splashy you know all of the effects that that you want from hitchcock uh, the you know it's vista vision and bernard herman's score is really huge and you got the titles and everything and you're it's got mount rushmore and all this stuff going on and then he just completely scales it down uh, goes from b- brilliant color to you know very stripped down black and white and uh, and I think that's really effective. I mean, one of the things I was focused on watching it again, and you know, a lot of the stuff has been analyzed. I mean, you look at the scene of the two of them in in uh, his office and and please tax, they're, all they're the tax in the parlor. Cards. They're in the parlor because the par- being in the office would be too officious. <laughs> oh, parlor, right? But it's got like it's got the you know all the of all birds. the taxidermy and and you can and you know where the talons and stuff are pointing and everything. And there's a, there's a certain extra layer of sort of graphic menace to that and um and it just struck me just overall just watching this movie um how purposeful every shot was you really get the intentionality of the style in a way that that i miss <laughs> that you also uh, you know so much, it, that reminds you i guess of how much movies even really good movies are full of visual clutter 
you know, Psycho is a movie where where the camera angles are, uh, you know, the graphic elements of it, the lighting, everything, you know, the, you know, the the amount of time a shot is held, everything is very purposeful, I think, and, and and planned out and kind of satisfying just on a pure filmic level. So, what what do you all think of the style of this film? I mean, part of that is just Hitchcock being Hitchcock. You know, he was he was a thinker and planner, but I wonder if part of that also just comes out of the fact that the average shot length was so much longer back then. And if you know you're going to be holding an image for two minutes watching somebody talk, it's much more important exactly what's on screen and how it's framed, how it's presented, what the symbolism is, where the bird's feet are pointed, than if you're going to be seeing, if you know you're going to be seeing that shot for a second or half a second. Like there's, there's more intentionality behind the composition because you can actually see the composition. Maybe. I mean... I would say the if you if you look at well I hate to bring it back to Batman versus Superman but every frame of that is very carefully composed it's just choppily edited so you don't really get to look at anything for very long you know so I, I think it is as much a rhythm thing as as an actual um, you know planning versus not planning kind of thing. And I think the black and white is a huge part of it that you have to talk about when you talk about the style of this movie. Black and white photography allows so much more play between dark and light and these really stark compositions. Mm -hmm. And if you're telling a story about evil, you know, being able to play with light and dark is uh, very useful on a metaphorical and tonal level. So and and I think that's certainly at play here, the, the use of shadow and light. I mean, I like this so much better than North by Northwest. Mm. Mm. Do you have to say the word so much? I do have to say the word so much. Mm. Not, It's not that I don't like North by Northwest. <laughs> it's that I love Psycho. Oh, yeah. And in particular, the cinematography is just, it's so crisp. The blacks are so black. And in particular, that just comes into play every time you're studying Anthony Perkins' face. He's got that dark hair and those incredibly heavy eyebrows and those deep, dark eyes. And the pupil and the and the iris just disappear into each other. I mean, he just appears to have these huge, dark eyes. And it's because the, the light-dark contrast is so amazing. I mean, I, there's not a shot in Psycho that you can't just sit and look at just for the, the light-dark composition. Yeah, for sure. And I and uh, it, it's funny to think about this as being a necessity of of it of him having to shoot in black and white because he really couldn't show that all, you know it would be too bloody or too explicit in color. Um, that's, that's, it feels like the right choice anyway. Yeah, so just exactly. like, I mean, the wrong man was black and white, and that was only a few years earlier. And and, and it's you know it's definitely it definitely had artistic reasons for well, doing it as well. And the TV show was black and white too, right? right? Yeah. Like the for its entire run, you know. Right. So I mean, if you're kind of looking at this as an extension of the TV show, which it seems like Hitchcock and his crew were, you know, it would make sense for them to do what they already did and do it in black and white. I never, I never watched the TV show that much. I, I'm sure I'm missing some good hours of television. Yeah, I've, I've seen episodes here and there, but, well, you know, it's... It's more of a Twilight it, Zone kid. <laughs> <laughs> we got into this a little bit, but I think it's worth returning to. What do you make of the $40,000? I can make hat or brooch or a little pterodactyl. <laughs> <laughs> All of them are going to be very muddy because the that money is uh, in a in a newspaper in a car in a swamp. Mm -hmm. It's more of a bog. We yeah. keep calling it a swamp. I'm like, that's a yeah, bog, you guys. Bog. Look, I have a bog. I have bog on my nose, and nobody can see this. <laughs> Got, uh, every, listeners, I'm pointing at my computer, and it says bog. I, I also have bog underlined in my notes, uh, my handwritten notes. Yeah. I mean, they they make the express point that the forty thousand dollars at the end that the forty thousand dollars nobody got the forty thousand dollars. It's a crime of uh, passion, not of money, and it's kind of a way of underlining, you know, Norman's pathology. The fact that this was all on some level about sex and psychosis, not about cash. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also just it's a brilliant. I mean, this is something that the Cohen brothers keep doing, you know, with Fargo and more recently with Hail Caesar. There is that part of the American psyche that's like. Getting rich quick is the the ultimate goal. Yeah, and when Marion Crane grabs that money and runs off with it, you you can sympathize with her because, you know, she has the means to fix all of her problems. To in buy her off hands. her unhappiness. <laughs> <laughs> yes, to buy off her unhappiness, and it comes to nothing. Her entire so much of the first half of the movie is wrapped around that money, that money that doesn't belong to her, that money that she's so, so uncomfortable with, that money that she doesn't know where to put it. The scene where she's constantly fussing around her hotel room. Should the money go here? Should the money go there? Where is the money? Why aren't you out getting the money? 
And then Norman like picks up without looking at it and throws it in a bag. That is such a beautiful moment. Yeah, I mean, it does function as a, a metaphor to, I mean, a pretty loose one, but it's all about the idea of value and waste. Like human life has an inherent value in the same way that money has an inherent value. And the fact that both end up at the bottom of a bog highlights the waste and senselessness of Norman's actions. But as Tasha's kind of talking about, the money also represents opportunity and, you know, the ability to buy off unhappiness, uh, as Cassidy puts it. And that's that opportunity is also wasted, such as it is when she's killed, that, that her opportunity for a different life or to redeem herself, both are killed off along with her, you know? And money's not entirely out of the story for, for Norman either, because there's this, the idea that this mm-hmm. motel might used to be thriving, but... The highway went elsewhere, and mm. and and the capitalism and commerce has passed passed them by, and you know he's kind of just just hanging in there. Uh, they're both characters who are controlled in one way or another by Bunny as well. There's also the fact that I mean, to some degree, Sam and Lila are chasing Marion, but they're also chasing the money. Mm-hmm. Sam keeps coming back to the money, and when he, at the end, when he's grilling Norman, he's grilling him about the money. You know, he is a man with serious money problems, and that money looms large in his imagination. I think he also just assumes that that's that would be his motivation, and I, he can't imagine why Norman would do this otherwise. You know, even though even though we eventually learned better well and the money is also what brings arbogast into the story like he is sent after the money it's not a missing person's case for him it's you know he's tracking down a criminal you need the money for him for arbogast you need arbogast (laughs) you really need arbogast i just i keep coming back to the end of fargo and all of the you know all of the dirt that is done over that money and then it ends up you know buried in the snow and the way Francis McDormand kind of points out all of these things that you did were such a waste. It, as Genevieve says, it just kind of comes back to the idea of wasted chances, wasted opportunity, and wasted resources. A little bit of money. Well, all, all of you are making very good points uh, because my my original thinking on it was like this is <laughs> forty thousand is like a red herring, or, or that you know that it's that it's, that it's her that it's her right that it's her thing, and that's it's what we think the movie is about. It's just a giant misdirect, and it's and it's gone. Uh, it never really occurred to me that um, that we should continue thinking about it as the film goes on and it affects the other characters, which is absolutely correct. So um, this is podcast has value for me <laughs> interpretively, and and, I, and Genevieve's point is particularly good uh, about about value, about value of money, value of human life. I have no, nothing to add there other than I really like that point. There's so much in this movie that you can dig into on a metaphorical level and you know we could spend another half hour doing that but ultimately i don't know how valuable that is value Mm. um just because it's well not impossible i'm sure he he spoke about it but it's difficult to know what of that hitchcock intended on a metaphorical level versus just a tonal level or a narrative level like the birds you could go into the the stuffed birds so much you know and (laughs) he might have just been teasing his next movie exactly exactly one of my favorite little you know tidbits i've seen about the the taxidermy is that stuffed birds is british slang for you know, <laughs> you, you know what stuffed birds has been as British for sexual Congress, you know. And, Oops, and do we think that Hitchcock intended that? Eh, maybe, no. you know, but does, but it's still fun to toy with those, you know, <laughs> suggestions. To toy with ridiculous British things, uh, yeah. <laughs> British I mean, phrases. I don't know. I mean, Norman kind of explains the whole stuffed birds thing himself when he talks about how, how beasts look unnatural when they're stuffed. And he's talking about his mother. But birds are just passive. And he's talking about mm-hmm. how, how his mother is not and how his mother was not and how that was the problem was that she wasn't she wasn't passive enough in their relationship. And that's why he killed her. You know, his whole speech about like how he got into taxidermy and, and why he does it just feels like a, a bunch of clues. Have you ever seen the inside of one of those places? The laughing and the tears and the cruel eyes studying you. My mother there. But she's harmless. She's as harmless as one of those stuffed birds. I am sorry. I I only felt... It seems she's hurting you. I meant well. People always mean well. They cluck their thick tongues and shake their heads and suggest oh so very delicately. 
course, I've suggested it myself. But I hate to even think about it. She needs me. It's not as if she were a, a maniac, a raving thing. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. Haven't you? And that's one of the things, one, one thing we really haven't talked about. This movie is so full of, of visceral, like, out-of-nowhere twists and shocks that play like a jolt to the head the first time around. But a lot of the replay value comes in seeing how a bunch of these things are set up. And that, that initial conversation between Norman and Marion in particular, we're going to get into some of this when we start bringing in 10 Cloverfield Lane. But there is so much wrong with that conversation. And part of what's wrong with that conversation is the way Janet Leigh plays it as though it's a normal conversation when it just it, it inherently is not. I mean, the fact that all of those birds just appear to be like like creepily watching them in modes of predation. I mean, you can talk about if you want to talk about representational symbolism, they're they're birds of prey and she's <laughs> sitting in a room with a predator and doesn't know. Marion Crane, a bird from Phoenix. Oh. Up. Wow. <laughs> there are definitely people who have just connected that with the fact that he was in if the process of making the birds. For this thing? <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to kind of go around and see, you know, what scene other than the shower scene uh, really kind of stood out for you, uh, Tasha. Oh, I mean, there's you can't get around Arbogast's murder. There's that overhead shot in the stairwell where you you know that he's coming coming into a threat area, but then Hitchcock like doesn't take it in, doesn't shoot it the way you're expecting it to be shot by suddenly jerking the camera up overhead. You end up with this perspective that's just so disorienting and so startling. I've never liked the shot of him tumbling backwards mm. down the stairs. It's just you know it's subject it, to the it, limitations it, of the time. Yeah, it, it elicits some some giggles in in my household on the on this viewing i like know. it there's a whole a whole thing i get into but i often find that sort of limited effects or, or what we see as a limitation of time just have kind of a dreamlike aspect to mm-hmm. me and to me it's just like this is an odd thing that's happening and it looks weird and that's okay i don't necessarily need to buy that buy it's a realistic fall down the stairs yeah i, I would was... be fine with that though if the whole sequence was like that mm. but the the approach to the doorway is so realistic and then the overhead shot of norma emerging is so realistic mm-hmm. and then at the end when he's at the bottom of the stairs and she he plunges down upon him like a bird of prey all of that is in the same sort of realistic vein and then you have this one dreamlike shot in the middle of it i find it jarring not in a good way oh i love it (laughs) (laughs) i don't don't feel like it's a limitation of time i think it's just deliberately stylized you know it's this moment out of time uh, of just pure shock and horror and we were holding on it you know it's and we're disoriented by it you know i think he's, he's highlighting as a very specific moment in a way that's different from anything that leads up to it and anything that follows and so so to me that's that's an, that's great filmmaking period I like um, I like the scene with the used car dealer actually too. We realize still mine. Yeah, <laughs> but also the, you, it's it is the first kind of first predator that she runs into mm-hmm. as as a, as a woman alone with forty thousand dollars in in a in a you know when people are looking for her and and here's someone who thinks he's he's probably going to rip her off or 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 definitely trying to get the best deal possible out of uh, out of a you know a, a know nothing woman driver right uh, <laughs> and it just sort of you know it's. If the conversation doesn't go the way he thinks it's going to go, she wants to get out as quickly as possible, and you realize just how fragile her situation is. I still don't understand the cop in that scene. Like, he's watching her, and she's obviously doing something not technically wrong, but that suggests wrongdoing, and he just watches her. And I can't tell if he's just trying to intimidate her or if he is actually looking for a reason to you know, pounce on mm-hmm. her. And it, that is a thread that just is kind of left dangling. And I, I don't mind that, you know, the, the cop doesn't keep bugging her. Um, and I do love the shot as she drives away from the used car dealer of the of the three men, the cop, the dealer and the mechanic just watching her, you know, and it's 
it goes back into the whole kind of voyeuristic aspect of it. I can never understand what Marion herself is doing in that scene. That scene's always bothered me because she comes in nervous and flustered, but with a, a specific goal in mind. And then the cops, they're watching her the whole time. And yet she not only proceeds with what she's planning on doing, but in doing it in the most awkward and suspicious way possible. And for me, it's like the inevitable shot in so many of these like heist films, crime films, woman on the run films, where the woman like goes into the bathroom and cuts and dyes her hair and comes out looking different. It's like she's doing that with the door wide open and the person who's pursuing her standing there in the doorway watching her do it. And she's like, look at me cutting my hair. Look at me dyeing my hair. It's just... I, I, I always feel like she's like going to wise up. Maybe this is the viewing of the movie where she wises up and says, okay, it was nice talking to you and goes somewhere else where the cop isn't staring at her. It, it's one of those movies that has that kind of power where you, every, each time you watch it, you wonder like, well, like you said, maybe this time they, they changed their mind. Maybe things work out differently this time. If only things, if they made different decisions, you know, it, it's, I think that's a testament to, to what a strong movie it is. Oh, for sure. And, and for the empathy that it provokes. Yeah. I mean, also she doesn't know what she's doing, period. She's a terrible criminal. Terrible. <laughs> Marion has no chill. No then. chill. I mean, you know, because she, she's guilty and she's panicked and this is a chance she's taken. She's still um, ambivalent to say the least about the decision that she's made. And now she's having to kind of continue down this path that makes her uncomfortable and that she she's a moral person and, and she can't hide that discomfort. Um, so it seems to me that the decisions that she makes, poor as they are, you know, and the lack of chill is entirely in keeping with where the character's head is at at that uh, moment. And I think I think uh, Janet Leva gives such a fine performance in this movie. Uh, you know, the Norman Bates figure is so looms so large over the film as it should, but uh, that's a hell of a performance too. I just want to highlight real quick a moment of levity and humor in this movie, oh. in which there are not a whole lot. But I love the shot of him watching uh, the car sink in the bog. And it's sinking and it's sinking and it's sinking and then it stops and he just looks at it and then it starts sinking again. And it's just such a, you know, it's just a perfect little, you know, there aren't really any other moments like that in the movie that I can think of. So maybe that's why I appreciate it. I also like when he was eating candy corn, that, that, that is the candy that Norman Bates would eat. It's like pure, it's like the id of candies. It's just sugar. There's no depth to it at all. And like Only crazy people foul, eat crazy corn. Foul crazy corn. Foul tasting. <laughs> apparently, apparently he improved that. Apparently that mm-hmm. was just something he was allowed to add to the character. Good and on I, you, Anthony Perkins. Yeah. I don't know if he was like, you know, you know what foul old ladies eat, even if they're actually like handsome young men. Yeah, it seemed, it seemed Vince Vaughn was like, uh, maybe, maybe he jerks off. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, all, that was his detail. All actors choices. have to make choices. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Just that Vince Vaughn makes really terrible ones. Um, so I want to. I want. It could have to... been worse. He could have been jerking off with a candy corn. <laughs> Oh God! We're not pushing the E here. This yeah, is yeah, all this is all Hayes code appropriate. This is all above board. Um, I kind of want to highlight before we close this out because it's my turn, right? Yes. Okay. Scott, what about you? What about, okay, thank you. Yeah, let's start. I like the third big suspense <laughs> set piece mm-hmm. with with Sam and Lila, you know, doing a little snooping around mm-hmm. because it's all. Because I think it's a tougher thing to pull off. It's not, you know, it's not at, at night. You know, you're not you're not going in this creepy house. It's it's you know middle of the day. All the rooms are open. Norman Bates is who knows where he is, but we're pretty freaked out to know he could appear at any moment. And they're just kind of wandering around and poking around. And and uh, I think there's a real strong suspense to that sequence that doesn't make it feel like a suspense set piece in the same way that those in the same way that Arbogast's death and the shower scene are and uh and i think it's it's you know equally masterful but quite different tonally than those other two sure and there's just there's something about a hotel like you know in your in your heart of hearts when you walk into your hotel room that hundreds if not thousands of other people have done grotesque things in that hotel room but <laughs> you never think about that but, you know. <laughs> but, you, you, but, but that's fun in it. disney world next <laughs> <laughs> but you don't think about it because it's it is the province of a hotel to try to make that room as as clean and anonymous and sanitized as possible for you and watching them walk into this room and try to recreate in their minds what we know what happened there they have no idea and they're trying to connect the past and the future it's just god this whole film is just hitchcock doing that thing that hitchcock does where he gives the audience information and then lets them twist in the wind on it yeah it's a good one 
I think it's one of the better ones we've uh, talked about. It has to be, right? I'm, I'm going to make that claim because it, it's one of the best films ever made. So I can make that claim. So we're going to talk. Psycho's going to come uh, up again in the next podcast segment, which is going to include uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane. But now it's time for feedback. Feedback time. Is there a song that I can do? <laughs> it's feedback time. Our, our contentious discussion of MASH drew a couple of responses on the film's misogyny and whether we can cast judgments on it 46 years after the fact. Tasha, why don't you get us started? Well, this letter comes from Marion. Um, not Marion Crane, but we can appreciate the smooth segue out of Psycho. Marion writes... I was saddened by Scott's reaction to Tasha and Genevieve's objections to MASH, and specifically him saying that you can't judge an older movie by modern standards. I don't think that's what they were doing at all. Rape culture may be a modern phrase, but unfortunately it's an ancient and ongoing reality, and men sexually harassing and humiliating women is just a turnoff, full stop. It's not necessarily a criticism of the movie's quality. Unfortunately, again, there are scores of excellent movies that are also sexist and racist and homophobic and dot, dot, dot. But I don't like watching men sexually humiliate women, so I didn't enjoy this, is a completely valid critique that shouldn't be dismissed as anachronistic. I'm going to well, say two, two okay. things. I think that's very well put. Mary, I think Mary puts it very well. I think there, there are two things that we, that we kind of got into last week. And one is that I don't think depiction is endorsement. But I also, and I also think... You know, there's kind of a yes, I see that, and let's still look at the movie and appreciate it, you know? And, and I, I I, don't think you're wrong. I don't think any of you are wrong. But I think throwing out this is an example of rape culture shuts down all discussion of it beyond the way it plays into that. And, and that, to me, is troubling in its own way. To me, kind of what's interesting or important is, at least to some degree, is recognizing what this film was like in the culture at the time, how people might have perceived it then, and whether the objections that you that are made to it now were made at the time. I, I think that's a kind of an important thing, thing to Sure, to but can you acknowledge that at the time, pretty much all of the important critics uh, were men, and the people giving out the awards were men, the people who made the movies were men. And if the only voices that you heard at the time were voices saying, this is hilarious and fun, it's because those voices could have all been coming from the same perspective. Except, the films, except MASH, in the specific case of MASH, the film's biggest champion was Pauline Kael. <laughs> Pauline Kael, uh, that's that's a whole nother podcast right there. <laughs> okay, so so I think we're, we're getting into this a little bit more with the next letter. So, uh, Keith, why don't you read this one? Sure. Listener Tom writes, I write to object to the common argument that we shouldn't use today's morals to judge art from another time. To me, this has always seemed absurd. No time has monolithic morals. During slavery, there existed abolitionists and slave rebellions. During the run-up to the invasion of Iraq by the second Bush administration, there were thousands upon thousands of people in the street protesting. To say that the morals of a piece of art produced in either time period are excusable because they happen to side with the status quo is actually to take a side against the slaves or against the anti-war protesters or against whatever other group was battling the status quo and was not only sidelined at the time, but is then later also erased from the equation of the moral landscape of their own time. When MASH came out, there were indeed people who were protesting precisely the treatment that the film depicted. If the film is judged to be complicit in that treatment, then critiquing it on that basis is wholly justified, as such a critique was, indeed, also going on at the time. For the viewer to sideline that critique ends up also being an act of complicity. So there, Scott. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I didn't, I, if there, if there were objections on this specific front mm-hmm. I, ha- I i haven't encountered them but if, if they mm-hmm. if they're well i i think more generally you can say that that, that it appeared in the middle of you know the second wave feminine you know sort of the high high point of second wave feminism mm-hmm. looking for correct you're correct keith here uh, <laughs> uh so yeah, don't don't ever look at me for a taxonomy or timeline of feminism <laughs> i have tried so often to pin that down for writing purposes sure and people don't agree about it at all yeah uh, what many consider to be the height of second wave feminism. <laughs> entirely uh, safe there. And I think, you know, in some ways, if there wasn't a lot of it at the time, it might probably be the reason you pointed out earlier. And also because, you know, I think there's probably so much, it's just part of it, the attitude is so general to culture that why would you single out and mash when you can see it in probably a lot of other movies as well. I just still want to like the movie, guys. And and I still don't. And that's that's what fundamentally is what it's about for me, is the fact that so many other – I've seen so many other movies that that do sideline women or do treat women poorly or do kill off women in the first act when they were supposed to be the hero (laughs) or whatever. And I joked about it at the top of Psycho, but I have no no problem like with the way this movie treats Marion Crane. It's intrinsic to the story and it's a really interesting story. And it's sympathetic to her and interesting in how it develops her, you know, before she dies ignominiously in a bathtub. (laughs) MASH for me 
the the thing that I that hit me with it and the thing that I wanted to discuss is that it it to me is ugly in a way that very few films that I've seen are. And I don't want to shut down anybody else's discussion of the film. I don't want to shut down anybody else's appreciation of the film. And so much of the discussion that anybody gets into about representation and intersectionality and, you know, my point of view, your point of view is just about feeling free to express that point of view. I don't want you to feel like if I say this movie is full of full of rape culture and represents rape culture that you then feel that you can't discuss it or I think, that we I think, can't discuss it. I think rape it. culture is like a very difficult phrase for people and, and and I don't want you guys to think that by throwing out the phrase rape culture we are condemning the entire idea of this movie. It is just an aspect of that movie that we want to speak about and that modern term does apply. I think it's a, I think we've had a really good conversation about it too. Yeah. I, to me though I think it's an ugly world and the attitudes toward women are part of the ugliness i do not think it is an necessarily endorsement of those attitudes mm, and see that's where we differ yeah. and i think we talked about it a lot and <laughs> we, we're having the discussion if you, again. If you think you're listening to last week's podcast all yeah. over again yeah. go back we should and probably move on last week's podcast again all right well we'll just we'll agree to continue to speak about this and i, I don't want i don't really want to sadden any more of our of our listeners i was sad they were saddened by me um in any case um it was a good discussion and uh and both uh of our letter writers make very good points so we also have had a, a very long and thoughtful letter from listener connor on the ending of the witch but i don't want to get it into it here for fear of inserting the witch spoilers into our psycho slash 10 cloverfield lane podcast so we posted it on our new facebook page which gives me the opportunity to say hey everyone we have a new Facebook page. Please go to facebook.com slash next picture show for show discussion and suggestions, additional feedback, and general tomfoolery. General, general tomfoolery? Yes. As always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on our website. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll tackle 10 Cloverfield Lane and how it handles its own surprise twists and unsettling psychology. You'll also get to hear this. I was physically in pain by the end of this movie because I was so tense. Um, I love this movie because it hurt me so much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, our legs will be chained to the walls here at the Next Picture Show studio. We hope you'll join us when we return. You think I'm psycho, don't you, Mom? I didn't mean to break your cup. You think I'm psycho, don't you, Mom? Oh, Mama, why don't you get up?